All right, we are live. I want to welcome everybody um, to, to today's very special panel discussion webinar titled Sharing Our Visions and Voices to Hashtag Root Cause Racism. I'm Mark Raven from Kinexus. I'm very pleased to be moderating today. Um, you can see um, our panelists on screen here, and we're going to let everybody introduce themselves um, as, as we go round robin here in the discussion. So uh, to briefly introduce how we got to be here to have this wonderful panel today. Um, I reached out to Deandra Wardell and I invited her um, to write a few blog posts, I thought, on leanblog.org. And as Deandra will tell you a little bit more about, um, she took that idea and really ran with it and had uh, an amazing vision um, for recruiting. She recruited 15 women, some of whom are here today, to write blog posts on this theme of hashtag root cause racism. Um, some of those um, uh, blog authors are here today. We have a few other panelists um, joining us as well. And you can find all of those blog posts at leanblog.org slash RCR. Um, and so with that, let me turn things over um, to Deandra to uh, sort of further introduce uh, the project and our discussion today. Thank, thank you, Mark, and thank you to this fabulous panelist for, for being here today, and thank you to those who are online um, participating and watching and interacting with us on this webinar. Um, so just to give a, a high-level overview, this project came about, started out, as, um, it started out from a pain point, um, much like what we deal with in the space of continuous improvement. When there is a pain point, we want to find a solution. We want to find a, a way to alleviate, alleviate that pain. And my pain point stemmed from what I was seeing going on in our world as it relates to race relations, um, specifically after George Floyd's murder. And so with that, I kept thinking, you know, with what we do in continuous improvement, especially with what we do in the Kata, where we have these big, huge challenges, uh, but we... We still find a way to come up with a solution. Why can we not apply that to what's going on in our world? And um, the other thing is I wanted to make my voice heard about my concerns as a black woman and what I was experiencing. And so I've always been a talker and my form of protest, I decided was going to be the streets, uh, the virtual streets of LinkedIn. And um, typically I'm not... I you know, only talk about you know, just basic, safe things on LinkedIn. And I took a risk um, and decided to post about, you know, be gentle with your Black colleagues returning to work the Monday after George Floyd's murder because there's no telling how they may feel. And as a result of that, I um, received a, and I was nervous about posting that. I didn't know, you know, what, what, different events I was scheduled to keynote at and, and different projects I was scheduled to lead. Was there an opportunity? I, I would lose those. And what I decided at the end of the day, I'm a black woman before I'm anything else. And those risks would be worthwhile. So with my hands literally shaking over my keyboard, as I typed the post, I just did it scared. And what happened was I did receive some feedback that was a little unkind. But from that pain point, it helped me to further think about what could be done to raise the voices and bring lean more to the forefront to use the tool to address what we're experiencing. And so that, along with just the support from women in lean and my, you know, friends across the world and, you know, in and, and different sororities, especially Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and the way the women in Lean and just all these women rallied around and provided support, it gave me the strength to keep posting. And um, so I po did another post about microaggressions because I've dealt with those in the past. I'm dealing with those now. And I was nervous about that post, but I had a little more courage because I had an army of all these women behind me. And from that, that again, received some more unkind posts that, you know, there were noise, like we see in our processes. Sometimes things are noise and they just need to be ignored. But it raised, um, it, it, it caught Mark Graben's attention, the Mark Graben, and he messaged me and we just had a very open, honest, uh, it was a really healing dialogue. And he extended to me the offer to write a blog. 
And I don't believe there is an I in team. I never do anything alone. And I always say that if I ever get a seat at a table, I'm bringing all my friends with me. And so when he extended that offer, I said, well, you know what? It's odd that you should mention that because I've been wanting to write a blog. Um, Let me check with my friends, specifically the women in lean, and I'll get back with you. And the rest is history. And here we are today. Well, and thank you, Deandra, for um, really your, your leadership in, in bringing this, uh, this whole week uh, to fruition here. And you know, there were so many wonderful things um, shared on the blog this week um, from um, so many different perspectives. And we're going to ask, and we're going to ask everyone to spotlight uh, a practical idea, a countermeasure or a specific call to action. Um, so we're going to start with um, Karen Ross, if um, you can go ahead and introduce yourself, Karen, and, and share something with us, please. Thanks, Mark, and thanks, Deandra. I'm Karen Ross, and I'm coming to you from lovely Naperville, Illinois, 35 miles west of Chicago. I'm here in my art studio today, and I, along with Crystal Davis and Dorsey Sherman, am one of the founding mothers of Women in Lean, and I'm the founder and president of the Love and Kindness Project Foundation, and a lean coach and consultant. Some of you may know me from... uh, my book, How to Coach for Creativity and Service Excellence, and also Toyota Way to Service Excellence. What you may not know about me is that I don't come from uh, the world of business to the world of lean and continuous improvement. I come from the world of art. So I have a master's degree in sculpture. And 20 years ago, when I started studying art, people said to me, why would you want to study art? It's pointless. Art, Art has no purpose and artists have no purpose. And what I believe now is what I believe then, and it's what I wrote about in my blog, art has two really super important purposes. Artists actually look at the past and we create forward to the future. So when we create something, we may look at that history, but we're able to take our creativity and go forward to the future. When you actually do a drawing or write a song or create a dance, whatever you wanna do with your creativity, you actually are able to access those deeper parts of yourself, those parts that are underneath words. And when you create a drawing, you can look at that drawing and you can see things and learn things about yourself and the way you think and the way you feel that you might not have access to. So how does that relate to our hashtag root cause racism? Well, here's my practical step that you all can take. Gather your Children, gather your family members, gather your friends. Virtual is great. Get a piece of paper, some art supplies, sit down, take 10 minutes and draw a picture of what this world would look like without systemic racism. I actually did that. So here's my picture of what I envision a world without systemic racism would look like. And To help encourage you, because I know sometimes people say, oh, drawing is very scary and hard. There's going to be one more blog that you're going to find on the series. And what we're going to ask you to do is whatever next step you decide to take. If you comment on that blog post and tell us what that next step is, we're going to send you a signed print of what I envision a world of root without root cause racism to be. So that's my next step. I look forward to hearing about everybody else's next step. Well, thank you, Karen. And um, next we have uh, Tracy Defoe, if you can introduce yourself and share your call to action, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Karen, for that offer. Always a hard act to follow, Ms. Karen Ross, I got to tell you. (laughs) I'm coming to you today uh, from Vancouver, Canada. And um, I am also not somebody who came to continuous improvement uh, from business, but from education. So I'm an adult educator uh, specializing actually in what people learn at work. I also part-time teach at university. And it was my university work that first took me to workplaces. Um, when, and I think that's enough. I mean, I, I teach part-time at Capilano University of Vancouver. Um, I have a consulting company called The Learning Factor. 
I am a self-described cat geek and a curriculum nerd. And right now actually spending a lot of my time helping people flip their, their training and their meetings uh, to remote learning. Uh, but the thing that I wanted to share is, um, and what my blog post is about, is actually a really personal thing that helped me uh, take a step and sort of change the way I see myself. As part of my work at the university, we, we are uh, indigenizing and decolonizing uh, our work as educators. And um, as I write in my blog post, uh, my family history in, in Canada is a history of settlers from Europe who came to North America at the invitation of a colonial government and um, who gave away lands, for example, to one of my great great grandfathers to farm that you know wasn't really theirs to give away. So when we started looking at what we call in Canada truth and reconciliation, I attended um, the hearings and heard the stories of Indigenous people and the suffering they've had from systemic racism in Canada. And also realized the great gaps in my education. So my high school and elementary school education in Canada didn't tell me about the ugly sides of our culture. As I read in so many books that perhaps America's education system has until white people the real hard truth and lived experience of the people that they are in America with. So my tip uh, was something that I did at the time and I'm just holding it up. There's a picture of it on the blog, but um, at the uh, urging of uh, Chief Robert Joseph, who said to white people in Canada, hey, settler people, we don't want your house and we don't need you to go back anywhere. We just want to live with you in respect and move forward to a better world. And he said, one of the things you could do, white people, uh, is to start to call yourself white. And so I had never called myself a white person. If you had said to me or on the census, I'd have put Canadian, you know, I'm born here, my family's born here. But at his urging, I did that. And I wrote on this piece of paper, one thing I could do to make Canada a better place and was to start to call myself white and a white settler. And I also decided to acknowledge lands. And I didn't do that this morning. It just seems so weird on a webinar. But I am coming to you from the unceded territory of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh and Musqueam nations where I was born and live and work as a guest upon these traditional lands. And also the third one I wrote here was to support indigenous artists, voices and writers, something I have really enjoyed and sometimes been pretty uncomfortable as the only white lady at a book launch. But um, it is something that has given me courage to say, I can put my time, my energy, my money, my volunteerism into places where um, that helps me learn and grow and extend you know, my experience. So I would urge everybody who is listening to this, who has never maybe called themselves white, to just put it on a post-it note. This is an excellent continuous improvement tool. <laughs> it's an excellent education tool. And um, uh, Chief Bobby Joe calls this your back pocket plan. I actually keep mine in my wallet most of the time, but you wanna put it somewhere where you will see it and remind yourself that just this one little step can be a brave step that changes the way other people feel included and welcomed. And um, maybe, maybe could expand uh, the way you walk upon the earth as a kind and gentle person. So that's basically all I wanted to say. Great. Thank you, Tracy. And next, uh, we have Bella Engelbach. She's going to be speaking from a perspective of uh, the business world or, or corporate settings. Thanks, Mark, and thanks, Deandra, for the opportunity to be here. So um, I'm sure there are people here on the web who are not into lean or continuous improvement. And in fact, you might even be asking, what is it that we do? So I'm just outside Philadelphia. And what I do is I work with people and organizations to help them work better. And we have a, fa a fantastic opportunity um, in the work that we do in continuous improvement in lean, but it's also an opportunity that people in HR have, that people in other corporate roles have, people who get involved in organizational change, organizational redesign. And that is to look at, is the work that we're doing changing the impact of systemic racism? So the impacts of systemic racism are often economic. They are often uh, the impacts of systemic racism fall on the backs of people who perhaps have not had fa fabulous educational opportunities. They fall on the backs of people who perhaps cannot get full-time work or have to work multiple jobs or struggle to get childcare. 
So I'm going to suggest some questions that anyone who is in this type of role can ask as they are working on the work, as you are thinking about how does work get changed, how does it get redesigned. And I would suggest, based on what Tracy said, that you pick one of these questions and you put it in your wallet or put it on your desk or wherever you need it to be to remind you to ask this question, these questions as you redesign work. So first of all, let's really look at the work that we're helping to create through a real people lens. Let's ask questions like, is this work we're creating, is this job we're asking people to do, is it really fair? Does it provide a good day's work? Does it provide a schedule where in the U.S. you can actually get benefits? Will it pay enough to live on? Now, a lot of times, those of us in continuous improvement go, don't get too involved in what people get paid to do the work. I would suggest I, that we start asking that question. What are people going to get paid to do this work? Does this job, does this work, does this new process lead to growth for everybody who is involved? And most importantly, how is this work that we are helping to create, this new process we're helping to create, how is it accessible to those who are not usually included. And that means really looking around and seeing who's included and making sure those people are brought into the room, their voices are heard, and the work is designed, developed, new processes and designed and developed with them in mind. So just pick one question to start asking. Be brave about it. It's hard to ask those questions. It might feel a little bit scary. You might be worried about your own job, about I'm gonna lose a client. Start to take that first step, and uh, I hope that you find at least one of those questions helpful in your work, no matter what you're doing. Ella, thank you very much for your thoughts. And now we are going to turn to Elizabeth Swan, who's going to be talking uh, from a standpoint of, of business and quality. Elizabeth, go ahead. But oh, you're muted, Elizabeth. Just that happens once in every meeting. That's okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Hey there. I am the chief. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Swan. I'm the chief learning experience officer for GoalingSixSigma.com. I'm also the author of the Problem Solvers Toolkit. Also teach problem solving at UC San Diego. I have been kind of helping coaching problem solvers build their problem, sol problem solving muscles for Way too many decades, wonderful decades. I'm based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I am thrilled and honored to be part of this. Uh, Deandra gave each of us an opportunity to get off the sidelines and join this discussion. And I will acknowledge, based on uh, Tracy's point, uh, as a white woman, that was a big deal for me and gave me pause to think. So what I know about problem solving is that it's symptoms that trigger your efforts. You know, something's gone wrong, something's taking too long. You know, in terms of racism, the symptoms are all around us. Um, all the writers in the blog series, the women on this panel have been educating all of us on both the symptoms and a lot of the root causes of racism. I've been teaching and coaching and helping people through problem solving for over 30 years and applying my experience and methods to the problem of racism caused me to think about, you know, first and foremost, we always tell people you have to look upstream for root causes. You know, you're seeing a symptom, the cause is upstream somewhere, but what if you're looking up the wrong stream? You know, we see conferences where the keynote speakers are all white men or workforces that lack any people of color. That's a symptom of racism. And the root cause is not just upstream. It is the stream. So I'm quoting at next talk show host, John Stewart, but if we don't pay attention, we will easily access the same white male tributary. And I've heard people say they used, you know, they use blind techniques when they're hiring, uh, not paying attention to names or gender but by the time you're looking at a candidate, they've already come through a chosen stream, whether you are conscious or we are conscious about it or not. And even though I think I am fully aware, I recently did the same thing. Without thinking, a colleague and I chose a series of podcast interviews with white male leaders to include in a training. And 
there were a lot of options, but it took someone else to point out that we'd failed to include any women and anyone of color. So yes, we need to target, or as Karen Ross pointed out, you need a vision. What should the workforce look like? What should the conference look like? But what stream are you accessing? So my challenge to myself and to others is to always question your sources. Be mindful of the waterways you're on and who else is on them, because uh, you may have to look elsewhere. Elizabeth, um, thank you. Thank you so much. And now we are going to turn to Debbie Sears Barnard, who's going to um, share some thoughts coming from a healthcare perspective. Hello. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be here. I'm Debbie Sears Bernard, and you'll notice that I think um, off to the side, you can see it's nighttime where I am. I am currently in Dubai. I work for Joint Commission International, but this um, conversation and the and my participation in the blog series was not related to uh, my current job. Um, Deandra tapped me on the shoulder and um, initially I hesitated because I'm not one to be on the front line. I'm not a protester. I'm not a marcher. And as I listened to her um, talk about why this work was so important, I realized that I needed to add my voice, my personal contribution um, to this discussion. I've been, I started healthcare as a, as a young nurse in my early 20s, and for 30 plus years, I've been involved in healthcare. Healthcare is all I know. I've had the opportunity to live in five different countries, so I've seen healthcare at various um, levels as a frontline nurse as um, in roles um, at the executive level. And in Canada, I had the opportunity to work for the Canadian patient safety industry. And when I first started to do research um, and collate my thoughts um, for the blog, I realized that um, this point in our conversation is really connected to a lot of the data that we've already uncovered um, related to safety. That basically, unfortunately, when patients come to us in healthcare, they're often harmed by care. That's been the focus of my work for more than 15 um, years. And I can tell you, I was... Um, totally impacted because I realized in my past role, when I was looking at how answering the question, how safe is healthcare, that the organizations where I previously worked and the work that I led, very seldom did we pull the data and look and see, is harm equal? And so as I was doing the, the research and we had um, a part of our Women in Lean group who did some additional research, I um, provided those references in the blog. So those of you who are interested, I really encourage you to go and look because the data is very clear that persons of color are harmed by care. So I realized that my passion for making sure that our patients are safe, that I personally, out of this conversation, um, have realized that my work needs to add to it a new dynamic. So the two things, the call to action, uh, and if you notice, I've given you my personal um, viewpoint, um, my personal feelings, because I feel that for those of you that are that are participating, when you look at the data as someone who gave feedback after the blog, she said, oh, my God, I didn't know this data. So I would encourage every single person, because if you have not interfaced with the healthcare system yet, somewhere along your life journey, you will have to. So I recommend that you look at the data, look at the current state, and there are two things that we can do. 
we, those of us that are sit in leadership roles, we can first do this a lovely free um, assessment tool that's uh, available that organizations can actually look and do an assessment so that they can understand what is the current state. And then on an individual basis, for those of us that are healthcare professionals, there's a test called the implicit bias test. It can be used in healthcare. It can be used in any of the industries, but healthcare is my baby. So I'm asking um, our healthcare practitioners to take it because even as we're interfacing um, with patients, we realize that those things that we're not even aware of may be dictating how we interface with the people that we care for. So those are my two things. On an organizational level, do an assessment, know where you're at. And as all of my colleagues um, have said, once you know, do one small thing, start with action. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Debbie. And um, before we turn to Karen, Deandra, was there anything that you wanted to add and kind of reflection of, of all this? Oh, as, as each person spoke, um, you know, what it, it, it just took my mind back to the preparation for this project. I was very intentional with the selection. I wanted to have diversity, um, not only in, in what you see on the outside, but the diversity and thoughts. So uh, the people who are involved in the blog project, some of them have extensive experience with continuous improvement. Some are new to continuous improvement. And um, one of the, the, the main things that we teach in Lean, how important it is to come together as a team. Yes, we need to look at data, but we do team-based data-driven problem solving. And, you know, hearing the different inputs and the calls to action from everyone, you know, I just couldn't imagine how this could have been accomplished with just my one voice. And just hearing the different perspectives from people with different expertise. And then along the way, we each learned something. As we were talking to one another about our blogs and um, some of the different conversations we were having, there's so much that I learned. And that the, the other thing is, it's just, you know, remembering that you don't have to know everything. You don't have to make one big step. You get some friends together. You get your colleagues together and figure out the one thing to do. Uh, but you know, sometimes we don't know where to start and it gets a little hard. And Karen, I think that's where you can kind of help us out with the next part of the, the discussion here. Thanks so much, Deandra. And thanks to everybody who shared their blog and shared their call to action and their next steps. And for those of you who follow my writing, one of the things that you'll notice is that I actually write often about the difficulty in starting. And one of the things about being human is that Starting something new, we don't have confidence because confidence comes from doing. So even taking the smallest step can sometimes uh, leave us frozen with fear or unable to get started. So although you might not be taking thinking someone else thinking you're taking a large step, if you take one of these action items to you as a person, if you haven't done it before, it can feel overwhelming and it can feel like there's many obstacles to getting started. So our next section of the of this discussion, we're going to hear from Crystal Davis and Kimberly Green Goldsboro and Dorsey Sherman about some of the obstacles that they're um, thinking about and some of the ways they have to overcome them. As I really want to focus on something that Deandra says, there's no I in team. So all of us are here and your friends and your family to help you get started as well. Thank you, Karen. Uh, so Crystal will give you the floor. Good afternoon. So I'm Crystal Davis. I'm the CEO and founder of the Lean Coach Incorporated. I also am a mother of women in lean. Very, very proud of that. Uh, and I actually am coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in lean in the manufacturing and supply chain arena. And so I thought what, um, when I was asked to participate, I, there's a lot I could say, but I thought one thing that I would share for you is just a couple of statistics and then I'll share my points. And then also I want to um, just acknowledge, oh yes, thank you. So uh, they took care of the acknowledgement of my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Mark has learned a lot about sororities already. <laughs> 
So anywho, all right. So from a manufacturing p- supply chain perspective, in 2016, there were uh, women who make women make up 49 percent of the labor force, but only 29 percent of manufacturing. And the n- number of women in color is even smaller than that. And they asked the women uh, if they were to start over in their would they start over in manufacturing? Two thirds of the 29 percent said yes. The reasons that they leave are poor working relationships, check, I've experienced that, lack of promotion opportunities, check, I've experienced that, and lower pay, check, I've experienced that. Women, uh, uh, companies have done a lot to help women uh, become more comfortable staying there, like offering flexible schedules, um, having uh, opportunities for greater visibility, mentorship, so forth and so on. All of these things are great. But here's where um, when I started to reflect on my own career and all the challenges that I overcame and dealt with, they were all lessons for me. But here's where I want to offer practical advice. All of the benefits and I call them carrots that are offered to people are great. But unless we change the environment it's very difficult to invite other women, young girls who are studying STEM careers, young girls who are in college. The percentages will never change if we don't change the environment. So I thought, okay, great. But this is a big problem. Racism is a complex issue. So I thought, okay, from a, from a lean com- continuous improvement perspective, we are taught to ask great questions. We are taught to be curious. And so when I thought about that, here's the question that I want you all to think about. What if we could get to zero racism? What would it look like? And I thought about that because my experience in manufacturing when uh, we were all driving the one of the big three and we had lots of competition from uh, foreign automakers was the issue with quality. And so we were challenged. I remember very distinctly, we were challenged that we needed to get to zero defects. And I looked at my uh, engineering director like he had three or four heads because I was like, where do we do that? We are bad. I set up a 32 point inspection station because we were on court on containment and we still had slippage. So where get to zero? Are you kidding me? But I thought about the power of that question and I thought, you know what, Martin Luther King didn't live to see some of the things that we uh, now have experienced too. John Lewis, who just passed, right? He, we still fighting for, for voting rights. He didn't get to live to see that. I think about my ancestors and the people who were in slavery who didn't get to live a free life. And I thought, you know what, I may, it may be preposterous. It may be big. I may not live to see it, but if we take one step toward it, And continue to move toward it the same way that we move towards zero defects. That's how we got to Six Sigma, right? The same way if we took that attitude and took that approach that we need to change the environment one small step at a time, be curious, ask great questions, determine what you can do, no matter how big or how small. That's all I got to say. Somebody just commented, um, I could listen to Crystal all day. So we say, that's all you've got to say. That was beautiful. And I'm sure there's more and we'll, we'll draw you into more of the discussion. Um, so next we are going to turn to uh, Kimberly Green Goldsboro. Good afternoon. Hi, I'm Kim. And um, I am coming from the uh, Fort Washington, Maryland. I work at the Environmental Protection Agency, federal government, having uh, been introduced to lean concepts and process improvement some 30-some years ago, worked in that area, did a lot of other things. And for the past 12 or so years, I've been engaging in process improvement with a very able team of um, innovation specialists at the Environmental Protection Agency. So what I wanted to talk a little bit about today is... um, what is stopping us? You know, what, you know, why aren't we moving forward? And um, I've, I've been helped by a recent uh, reading a book by um, Dan Heath, which, which happens to be titled Upstream. And um, Elizabeth having mentioned, you know, the, the, the concerns of, of, you know, you have to be careful on which stream you're working on. But anyway, in this book um, that, that really uh, resonated with me is this, this whole idea of lack of ownership recognizing that 
Um, a lot of times we don't act because we don't feel that we have ownership. And we may, it's not that we're not motivated, but we have a feeling that we don't legitimately have ownership of an issue. Therefore, we won't act upon it. We won't take a step. And this sense of, you know, not have, not being legitimate enough to move forward and say something about um, an issue that is about gay and relates to gay or lesbians. And I'm, I'm straight. I can't really stand up and talk about that or, yeah, that's a female issue. And I'm a man. I can't talk about that. That's a healthcare issue or a public health issue. You know, I'm not in that industry or that area. So it's like really grappling with this idea of us being legitimate and standing up for what we believe in. And um, in his book, he talks about this whole idea of psychological um, standing. So we have this idea in our head that you know, we, we carry around that we have to have sort of the legal standing. You know, when you go into legal court of law, you have legal standing. When you have the facts, they've been associated with you. And then you feel strong in whatever it is you're about to say. But psychologically, because we're not the group, we're not uh, the victim of racism, perhaps that's what's holding us up from stepping forward and taking whatever those small steps are that we can legitimately take. But the bottom line is that because we all are part of the human race and we're talking about human kindness, um, that is what legitimizes us. We are all legitimate in our desire to move forward and to, to eradicate racism. So the, the message that I have is really just um, taking a step. You are legitimate. You, you have a legitimate right to step forward and say what it is that you have to say. You know, my father would often say, he would say, get in where you fit in. And the thing is, uh, he knew it. And it sounds like he's going to fit in where um, you may think he fits in. But he found a way, he knew where he fit in. And you'd find him in the most unusual places, fitting in, doing what he was designed to be here to do. And I'm just encouraging all of us to do the exact same thing. Take those small steps wherever you are and don't think you have to have all the answers or you have to be representative of that group. And so thank you all so much for allowing me to be a part of the conversation. Thank you, Kimberly. And uh, that was also very, very well said. And uh, we're gonna turn now to Dorsey Sherman. Thanks, Mark. My name is Dorsey Sherman, and I am a lean consultant. Um, my company is called Model Consulting, and I live in Muskegon, Michigan, uh, along the western side of the state. Um, I'm also a leadership coach, Toyota Kata Geek, and one of the mothers of women in lean. So I was asked to speak about obstacles, and I thought a lot about this. Um, and don't want to speak for anyone else. So I've identified the three obstacles that are the biggest for me to overcoming racism. Um, number one. So before George Floyd was murdered and before COVID, at seven o'clock on a Tuesday night, I was exhausted. After uh, this was a tip, any 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 night of the week, a full day of work, dinner, helping with my kids and homework, driving everyone around to volleyball soccer, cello, choir. Uh, I didn't want to watch a movie that was upsetting. Um, I want to watch The British Baking Show and 90 Day Fiance. I am uh, an avid reader, but I don't, I didn't want to read books that dealt with racial or social injustice, mass incarceration, voter suppression, um, or racism in healthcare. I was more apt to read the latest National Book Award winner. And I thought that if I read the books and watched the movies about racism, I would feel sad and angry and frustrated and powerless and helpless. And so I wouldn't, and I wouldn't know what to do and that would feel terrible. So I chose comfort and that comfort is an obstacle to overcoming racism. Um, Number two, and this was an idea pointed out um, by Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, Austin Channing Brown in her memoir, I'm Still Here, I considered racism as an overt act of hatred towards a person of color. I knew that more black people were in jail than white people. And so I recognized the ideas of, of systemic racism, 
But for the most part, I think of a racist person as a bad person. I consider myself a good person and so not racist. And so I see this now as both not true and not helpful. This binary construct of racism kept me from seeing um, that of course I'm racist and it kept me from taking action um, because if you think I'm not racist, I'm, I'm not bad, I don't need to do anything. The third obstacle um, for me is I've been socialized as a white privileged woman to make sure other people are happy and comfortable. The message that I've gotten is to keep my voice down, my feelings under control, and make sure everyone else is good. And so that training is an obstacle to racism because when a joke um, a comment, uh, even an overt racial slur is made, I have stayed silent. And I don't want it to be awkward. I don't want other people to feel uncomfortable because then I would feel uncomfortable. So those are my three obstacles. And my uh, course of action that I'm taking is number one, read the books, read all the books. Um, and that's a strength of mind. So something I can gravitate towards, watch the movies and feel the feelings and talking about it with other people. Here's what I'm reading. Here's what I'm learning. Um, and bringing that up with, with friends and family and colleagues. Number two, recognize and get curious about how, not if my uh, prejudice is manifesting itself. Um, number three, speak up awkwardly very awkwardly if I have to, but uh, bravely against racist comments. Number four, more specifically, email my superintendent about why there's no black teachers at my kid's school. And number five, I'm donating to causes uh, that are working to end mandatory minimum sentencing and, and cash bail. Um, so I'll end there, but thank you so much for the opportunity to, to add my voice to the discussion. Thank, thank you, Dorsey. And before we get into Q&A, um, we're going to make just a couple of um, quick announcements about upcoming webinars and um, other resources that we want to let you know about. So in our Kinexus webinar series, um, Kinexus customers will be able to tune in to the next training team office hours on August 27th. And we invite everybody, Kinexus customers or otherwise, um, to attend a presentation titled Becoming the Change, Leadership Behavior Strategies for Continuous Improvement in Healthcare. That's going to be next Wednesday, uh, the 19th. Uh, Dr. John Toussaint and Kim Barnes from uh, Catalysis. And when we say, again, open to everybody, like the, the behavior, leadership behaviors that they will be talking about here do not apply just in healthcare. So uh, we want everyone um, to please attend that. Well, a couple other resources. Um, this panel discussion will go with the other recorded webinars in our on-demand library that you can also find at connexus.com slash webinars. We invite you to check out our blog, blog.connexus.com. And then finally, uh, we have a podcast series. The audio of today's uh, panel will end up in that podcast. It would be a great way. Sometimes people like to go back and revisit or share uh, with others, that'll be just one of the other ways you can share all of the insights and ideas from today's panel. And then there's one other um, quick announcement. Um, we are going to send, everyone will get an email tomorrow that has a link um, to the recording page. And we also have, um, here we go, I'm going to show a preview of this document, uh, a two-page PDF document that is linked in that website that has a really good synopsis of some of the, um, the takeaways. And I guess we can all answer the question in our own way, what's your next step? And uh, we encourage you to um, kind of reflect on this document and share it with others. And I'm really happy to offer that um, to everybody. Okay, so with that, um, we're gonna start with a fairly specific follow-up question for you, Debbie. Um, Sarah asks, and, and Yolanda asked a similar question, um, when you talk about making health equity a priority, um, do you have any specific assessment tools that you recommend or any specific examples of organizations they can learn from that have made health equity more of a priority and taken action toward that? 
Oh, Debbie, you're muted. Sorry. Wasn't expecting that question, so I wasn't prepared. So the Institute of Healthcare Improvement is a U.S.-based um, organization. They do an amazing job of developing resources that are shared um, around the world. So I'm not sure where the, que the question is coming from um, the U.S., but if you, um, if you go to IHI.org, they actually have a wonderful toolkit um, of all of the resources that I've mentioned in my comments and additional resources that are included um, in the blog. They have actually been doing work um, across the U.S. where a number of organizations have participated in doing collaborative work together so that they can share across um, organizations. And this fall, so if you are a part of a healthcare organization, this fall there's an offering that's listed on the IHI website where your organization can participate and other with along with other organizations who are wanting to improve in this area. They are connecting um, equity to the whole idea that if we say that we're providing quality care to um, patients and communities, that a part of that care, it must be safe, but it also must be equitable um, as, um, as well. So it's an excellent resources. Um, it has some really good how-tos um, in the document. I also um, inserted the link um, to the toolkit in the chat box as well. Debbie, thank you uh, for doing that. And here's a question that um, some of you may want to um, address. This question comes from Gail. And um, Gail asks, how do you handle what I call um, the tit for tat? This is where you see or hear comments like, quote, I see coverage on the protest for George Floyd, but what about this soldier who died or that child who was killed and no one is talking about that? Didn't that life matter? As if to say you can't protest one if you're not willing to protest all. Um, any, uh, um, Bella, if you want to go first. So this, I see this a lot. Um, and and um, I think part of, part of the answer to the question is the person who asks this question probably doesn't want to hear your answer. Um, it's a what about, it's, it's, it's not really, a, I think, a genuine question. Um, but however, um, one of the things that, that I have learned to say is, well, it's like it's your birthday, right? Supposing today was your birthday and you went around and you said, boy, I'm so happy today is my birthday. And you say this to somebody else and they say, well, what about me? I had a birthday last week. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know, happy birthday to you too. <laughs> Today's my birthday and today's the day we're focusing. We're focusing on me. Um, and but I think that there's, sort of, there's a bigger question there, and that is, um, and this is also sounds a bit pat, is that, that when people say, um, well, I don't believe in Black Lives Matter, I believe in All Lives Matter, I think the very simple answer to that is all lives do not matter until Black Lives Matter. Until we have solved these issues, which usually the person doesn't really want to look at, until we have solved those issues, we can't say all lives matter. We're not ready to say that yet. And I'd love to hear what other people say yeah. when they're responding to that. Yeah. Um, Crystal has some thoughts on this. So um, I actually um, first had to learn how not to be upset um, that the person was deflecting away from the issue. And so that's the first thing, because what happened when I got upset is I would lose my uh, I would lose control of the conversation. And so the second thing that um, that I had to learn was I had to learn, and, it, and I say this, uh, not that it's my job to educate anyone, but I feel like uh, we can't move forward until there's some understanding. And so what I simply had to explain to people is that uh, the situation at hand, when you, when you do that, you devalue that person's experience. And I have diverse friends, and I, I would say, uh, I gave this example to the women in Lean. I said, you know, uh, if myself and Dorsey, may I use you as an example? Myself and Dorsey were to walk into a very high-end store together. Although we walk in together, our experience could be totally different. 
Dorsey can walk in, go about, look at the beautiful items, beautiful scarves, purses, so forth and so on. I would be there and do the same thing. But at the same time, I am cognizant that if I walk away from Dorsey, that I could actually be followed or that I could not receive help because there could be a presumption that I can't afford the items in the store. Or that if I buy the items, will I wear them and then return them thereafter? So these these prejudices precede my precede me coming. And simply because of the color of my skin and these prejudices, that changes the dynamics of my experience versus Dorsey's experience. And by saying that it doesn't matter means that you are now devaluing um, the fact that I had to experience those things. Thank you, Crystal. And uh, Debbie, you have some thoughts as well. So I have a very simple ad. Sometimes children can provide us adults with some beautiful um, visuals. So on social media, um, a young teenager created a lovely picture. One house on fire, the other one not on fire. And in her meme, she said, The person whose house is fine, are we going to run over and save that house? No, we're going to save the one that's on fire. So what I have done, all those wonderful little memes that the teenagers and young adults have created, I've started sharing them with my friends who have said, all lives matter, because that's not the thing we're saying to get to the point where all lives matter. We each individually have to do our best to ensure that we create a world that works for everyone. And I, my, my goal was to speak as little as possible here and let our panelists shine, but I will comment. I'll just add, you know, I'm, I'm wearing this t-shirt intentionally, but up until two months ago, I would have not thought this was my t-shirt to wear, to be honest. And, um, and I, and I wear it not to be trendy, but to to be sincere. It's hard to tell how a T-shirt um, comes across, but I th- to as you said, I think we you know we all need to take a stand um, on this. So um, we have another um, another question. Um, the follow up for um, for Crystal. Um, I found it so inspiring when you were equating um, an audacious goal of zero racism to zero defects. Um, I'll add when we talk in healthcare of a goal of zero harm um, to patients, not just to healthcare providers. So the follow-up question from Kristen, um, what, so if we're going for zero racism, what's our metric, our results metric, or, or do we need to look at process metrics to support and drive that outcome? There, there was a similar question um, asked about, well, are we measuring equal opportunity incidents or what else would we try to measure and gauge progress? So it's a great question. And, um, and it's one that I need to give much more deep thought to, but here's my initial response. Um, I think that um, we, we have to identify to Elizabeth's point, what happens upstream? What are the leading indicators um, that would let us know that we have either a system or a policy that might um, lead us to systemic racism. And so what we tend to do now is we measure the outcome. I'll give you an example. So in the small business arena or small businesses working with corporations, corporations are keeping track of their minority spend. Okay, so that's an outcome. How many minority businesses did we give money to? But upstream, there are policies, contractual uh, agreements, there are um, networks that don't even allow that business to have a chance. And the same, it's not just isolated to minority businesses or small businesses, but you have to think about the upstream processes that might prohibit a business from even being viable. I have talked to a lot of supplier diversity professionals, and the first question they'll ask is, well, you know, most uh, most small businesses, as small as you are, they don't have all of their uh, their ducks in a row. And so they lead with that perception. And I said, well, what are the ducks that need to be in a row? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
right? And so without understanding that there are upstream process, up, upstream issues, measure that, evaluate that, what part of the process, the same way we do in a lean environment, value stream map the entire process, see the whole and identify where the gaps are and begin to put metrics in place upstream and leading indicators that show you that you might actually have a problem. Amazing question. Yeah. Um, Kimberly. Yeah, I just want to really tag on to what Crystal was saying, and it really gets to that lead and lag measures. Um, So, and you have to recognize that because the issue spans so many industry, just like the blog post, just like the the, uh, organizations and the industries that we represent here, there are different components that are leading into racism. So, the healthcare will have their own set of leading indicators and the business world will have their indicators. And, you know, in the art world, there will be indicators, education. So we all have to take responsibility for establishing, well, what are those leading indicators for what we know to be that heavy boulder that we're trying to really lift and, and leverage at the end. So it's, it's all of our responsibility to really identify what those are. So I had um, another question. Um, it's being directed at um, uh, Kimberly, but um, others can address this as well. So um, Allison writes, I found a, I read a recent opinion piece in the Washington Post that I found quite upsetting. Its bottom line message was that white people need to step away from the Black Lives Matter movement because it's not their fight and they're taking away from the message. Um, And I I did find um, that article, um, I I responded to the question, I'll also put it in the chat, but um, uh, not to put uh, Kimberly or anybody else you have thoughts um, on. And and I guess maybe I'll frame it in terms of like, as as a white person, what what can we do to be helpful allies? Um, Are are there things that we need to be careful about? Well, I I think that, again, it it goes back to um, acknowledging and understanding that we all are legitimate owners of this. Uh, The answer is not in the Black community. The answer is in humankind. And those who cannot recognize that this is going to require so many others to engage, um, then... it's, you know, I think our, our responsibility would be then to just bring to their remembrance of how have other unimaginable changes ever been made. It, it wasn't those that were, you know, clearly uh, being, you know, slavery. You know, it's, it wasn't all about slaves freeing themselves. You know, so there are just, their history shows us that, you know, when it comes to humankind, to change things that affect humankind it requires all of us. Yeah, well said. Any other? I, I, added, this, I added this comment in the, the chat box. And, you know, this project, what we've been doing is a perfect example of this is not just a Black issue. This is a humanity issue. And, um, you know, we have Black and white people you know, we have men and women. Um, you know, I think about the collaborations of how Mark and I have worked. This hasn't just been about DeAndre, the black woman with her issues. I had to hear about Mark, the white man and his concerns and be open to that. And so I hope that, and, and right now I'm emotional. I said I wasn't going to be, but I hope what everybody takes away from this is that we can't do this alone. We have to talk. We have to sit in our discomfort. We have to be open and honest. And we have to work together, just like this project. There's no way I could have done this by myself. And that's the same thing with this problem with racism. We can't, one, we can't do it alone. It can't be one group. It has to be all hands on deck, working together, going to see, asking why, and showing respect. And I, I know that may be oversimplifying it, but it's really just that simple. Well, thank you for that, Deandra, and, and thank you, um, thank you so much for your leadership and um, your dedication um, to all of this. Um, we're we're at the top of the hour, um, and um, I want to respect the time of our panelists. But 
um, you know, we have other questions and, and maybe at some point we can um, arrange something where we record some additional discussion based on some of the questions and, and we can send that out um, to everybody. So um, I wanna thank um, Deandra again. I wanna thank all of our panelists um, for, for participating this week. And, you know, as, as, as you know, I've, I've heard people say, through discomfort comes growth. And um, I, I, I think that's something to lean into, um, if you will. Um, so with that, um, I think we should, we should call it um, a panel. But um, thank you again, everybody. I, I will be calling on you. Maybe we can, um, we can record something. But I realize um, people have a busy Friday um, to get back to. So um, Kimberly, Karen, Crystal, Dorsey, Tracy, Elizabeth, Debbie, Bella, and again, of course, Deandra. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, um, for attending and for your comments and your questions. I hate to click end. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.